Do not be confused by the conversation that will follow. The perspective we present, which also caused some minor confusion for the author, is necessary. For Ross Raisin has written a novel that is almost entirely contingent on perspective. That perspective is presented to us through the Yorkshire lexicon. Using words that those who do not live in Northern England are not likely to use and are possibly not going to be aware of. It's a bit like subbing in elephant for window, or sex offender for attorney, or addressing one's wife by a different name. Perhaps some weekend lover in Wichita one might have spent a secret night with. The truth, sad and painful and devastating as it might be, does come out eventually. It seems unusual at first until one becomes accustomed to these linguistic surrogates, or they become more acceptable. Or perhaps it is never acceptable. You begin to see the mess that we're getting into here. Okay, so I am here with Russ Raisin, who is the author of God's Own Country in the UK and Out Backward in the US. Russ, right. I'm getting a little bit of a schizophrenic nature here in the title, but how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thanks, yeah. Uh, the schizophrenic nature in the book well, as well. Well, well this, yeah, there is a schizophrenic nature in the book. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to first of all ask a kind of general descriptive question about the book. There are many apertures and snickets throughout this particular book. Uh, Marsdyke frequently bristles along the edges of the walls. At one point he goes out to acquire fencing. He also says to Josephine at one point, um, we should keep tight to the walls. Later in the book, the crevices become a little bit more natural. You have a dry plot between two trees. And this struck me as quite interesting in light of his particular individual voice. And I wanted to ask you about how you designed this concern for environmental details relying upon boundaries and fences in relation to this very distinct particular voice and I plan to also rattle you with a number of uh, questions <laughs> about Yorkshire English terms but uh, but for the for the moment let's talk about this how did this design come about so to speak wow that's I, to be honest with you that's the met as a metaphor that's something I'd not particularly thought about in terms of um, I mean the, the book is very much about yeah, boundaries and where this guy fits, and he doesn't fit is the is the the kind of thing. And so, like he's ostracised from his family, from the town, from um, the offcomed people moving into the area, and yeah, and actually, actually thinking about it, there are quite a lot of don't come to my head that readily right now, but there are quite a lot of Yorkshire um, idiomatic words for boundary. Um, so like. Uh, Snicket being one of them, the one that you Snickle used. Snickleway, too. Snickleway, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Ginnell. Um, and so, yeah, and I suppose y you could make a, an argument for the, 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 the idea of the um, kind of outsider on the edges is, is kind of ingrained in the, in the Yorkshire dialect. Certainly, certainly ingrained in, in, in this book and the way that he talks. Yeah. Because his, um, I mean, his voice is in itself on the outskirts of, well, on the outskirts of, of a real Yorkshire dialect to be honest but he, he talks in a very individual quite peculiar way and so that that in a way gave me license to um, to describe the landscape and the, um, the, the kind of town setting in a in an outsider in an outsider's voice 
in this peculiar peculiar language. Well, this concern for topography was intriguing to me because at one point uh, his mum actually gives him the concise encyclopedia of the world. <laughs> and then later on in the book, without revealing anything away, and let's try to uh, not announce the revelation, uh, he observes a boy reading maps of the British Empire. What's yeah, interesting yeah. about this beyond the fact that the scope of the world diminishes by the end of the book is the fact that here is this reference book that he doesn't even bother to consult in some sense. And, yeah. and I, I'm wondering, this is why I ask about the question of topography. Certainly he's being pushed to the walls, pushed to the limits, pushed to the nooks and crannies and snickets and the like, but there is also this greater concern for uh, not being able to pinpoint any particular location, even when he has the reference books at his disposal. Yeah, well, the reference books. So his mum, there's a, there's a passage in the book where he... Um, He's actually standing in a particular part of the street where he knows that he that the girl goes past because her school bus drops her off there, and so he to kind of like pretend that he's loitering with um, not mal intent. He starts um, fingering through the newspapers of the local garage, and um, and his mo and he collects them all um, and puts them in his bedroom. And his mum notices this, and so she thinks that he's actually wanting to take an interest in the outside world, which is quite a new thing for him. And so that's quite. Um, a good revelation for her and so she buys him as a present a concise encyclopedia of the world um, but in fact he he isn't becoming involved in the outside world he as the book goes on he's he's getting it's it's diminishing he's he's less and less involved with other people and um and with the physical you know world as well it, it, it kind of it boils down to him on the moor and with this one other person the 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 female character Josephine and then eventually it's just him diminishing further and further until it's just inside his head and it's extremely internal and it kind of gets lost in there. But the interesting thing about the books is that when he first goes into the adjacent neighbor's house you describe a snicket of books which yeah, again goes back to this idea yeah. of sni slivering into crevices but also slivering into this uh, these tomes that he cannot necessarily access and this also brings to mind the fact that he's been expelled yeah. from his school at the age of at the age of 16 Something for like that, yeah. this particular uh, situation that may be a rape or is a rape we don't quite know all Some we know that it's a yeah. molestation charge depends upon how reliable we actually view the narrator to be but uh, but this brings to mind this relationship of topography, as it is connected with reference books, as it is also connected with this idea of an unfulfilled education, uh, mm -hmm. now confined to the farm, doing manual labor mm -hmm. and the like. I mean, is it, are, are, what, were the frequent um, placements of books throughout the prose one of these scenarios in which you were suggesting a, an education that has been abandoned and as such a place in the topographical uh, confines that he operates in that has abandoned? Yeah, it's there's certainly um, constant markers and reminders to the reader and to the the character throughout the book that he um, he's he's not part of it, and so and so yeah, he's looking through the little snickleway between the books in the kitchen, and he um, and he in a way it was kind of licensed to um, to take the to take the the mick as well as writing it because because he's not involved in these things he can point out the kind of ridiculousness of some of the things that these people do like the cookbooks for example you know it, it's it's ridiculous the idea of some of these cookbooks and and he and he takes the mick out of them and he's never going to be involved in in that world um and that world's never going to never going to take an interest in him either and so he he draws further and further away from it yeah the decision not to name josephine 
except in the newspaper article that appears later in the book is intriguing to me because he is capable of relating to these animals, the whelps, the sheep, he has names for them and the like. He has relationships with them. And I, I want to ask you again about this idea of names in relation to uh, this disparity between how he communicates between humans and animals and how this almost presents a kind of telling clue when you're not exactly seducing us with this veil of wonderful Yorkshire terms and the like. Uh, how did you, did you want to foreshadow uh, what was about to happen later in the book with details like this, or, or was it really a matter of placing this gauze of language upon the reader's eyes with, uh, with getting lost in that particular voice? Yeah, um, yeah, he doesn't, he can't communicate th repeatedly throughout the book, and worse and worse, he can't communicate with um, other humans in a in a practical way. He, he he just doesn't have the facility to do it, and they uh, they have no interest. The other characters in the book, until the girl arrives, in fact, they have no interest in talking to him, and so he becomes worse and worse. And as he draws further inside his own head, his uh, imagination starts to kind of run wild. And then he's, this is why he he starts talking to all the animals throughout the book. He starts talking to the chickens and the and the sheep, and they become well, they become humanized to him, and they become a lot of the time they become allies in his kind of struggle against the, the human world. Um, and they also, you know, because obviously a sheep doesn't normally talk, yeah. he gives them a, a kind of an odd, a strange language that kind of mirrors his own. Um, yeah. Okay, but I, I suppose what I am asking is more of this relationship between... Uh, what was I asking exactly? The notion of, of names, and the notion of places, and the notion of uh, words. In fact, I, there are a number of Yorkshire terms in which you take a verb meaning and transfer it into a noun, and so everything yeah. is essentially inverted, even his communicative methods with the animals, as well as his particular idiosyncratic way of talking uh, to, uh, to, the, to the reader, uh, which is presumably the only person he really has to talk with, aside from his parents and the like, uh, and, and, and how the no this notion of inversion essentially uh, uh, announced itself. I mean, was this more of a sort of subconscious immersion in language upon your part, or conscious decisions, for example, to uh, take a verb and transfer it to noun form and the like? Uh, it came... Yeah, I suppose, I mean, the, the, the whole thing of the language being the, in that, you know, that kind of peculiar idiomatic language didn't come about immediately. It came about as a, as a result of thinking about character and wanting to think about a character that was very much inside his own strange little world. And the, one of the main ways that you c can achieve that is through, is through language. And so I started experimenting with... Um, different ways of, of working the language and that's how it turned into a first person book actually it was initially third person um, and and it I mean so so okay some of the language in it most of it is is a real sort of Yorkshire language it's kind of um, a bit of a melange of different parts of Yorkshire to be honest and a lot of it is invented but it actually came probably more out of um, rhythm began with rhythm more than more than actual lexicon and so you, I, I got a real sort of feel for this kind of rhythm of um, of the landscape and the way that kind of transmutes into the into the voice. And then through the second draft, I suppose, started inserting all these kind of words that, and a lot of them are 
our, our verbs actually, like glegging and yeah. um, blathering and all these kind of blunt Yorkshire sort of g- g- quite masculinized words that he that he peppers his language with. But gleg comes from the Scottish uh, noun uh, that essentially alerts and uh, quick to that respond. Right? That, that's at least what I discovered, and I and I'm wondering <laughs> where you transformed it into more of a verb. And also the difference between gleg and gop as well, because he gops at some points and glegs well, a at gleg, other points. A gleg is, um, is more of a, a brief look. It's more of a glance, yeah. I suppose. And a gop is more of a kind of staring staring yeah. look. But it's quite, it's quite an interesting point, actually, because um, like when you're writing the book, you become so absorbed with it. And I, you know, I'm convinced that these words that I've researched, they're Yorkshire words, you know, and I hold them very preciously. They're Yorkshire words. And then you tell them to somebody else and they're like, oh, yeah, we use that word. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a Herefordshire word. Yeah, no, yeah. it's not. And actually, um, the book I'm writing now, which is um, set in Scotland, in Glasgow, it, it's a very different sort of a book and it's a third person book, but it, the language is, again, quite important. So I've been, I've been up to Glasgow and I've been looking at, you know, um, dialect and I've discovered lots of um, similarities in the language and it's just quite an interesting yeah it's just quite an interesting discovery to see that you know some of these words have, have you know followed to certain areas and so and so yeah there's a lot of lot of matches but there's also a certain frequency of t- words evoking a particular meaning I mean for example you have many words for child yeah. or, ba- or baby you have uh, bairn babby gobby yeah. also he frequently uses words for idiot yeah barmpot yeah blatherskite doylem gomerol as well well this yeah that kind of I mean that's that parallels the nature of the character and so there's lots of words for somebody who's on the edges or somebody who is stupid and there's lots of words for for looking as well because he's you know he's on the outskirts and he's looking in he's he's constantly through the book he's always observing people and it's often quite you know it's quite sinister as well the way that he's he's looking like, he's looking through the snickle way between the cookbooks and he's looking from his rock on high and he's he's always watching them but this is interesting to me because it, it makes me wonder whether the frequent usage of a particular kind of uh, almost thesaurus here for Yorkshire words uh, comes from the actual dialect or comes from the character because it seems to me that if you're using numerous words to represent one thing uh, the reader is going to catch some sort of subconscious thing should the reader wish to you know delve into uh, etymological texts and the like uh, was there a choice on your part pertaining to the character about frequency of 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 types of words or synonyms no not as such it's something that that just came just came about and I noticed it in the second draft that that's kind of what had happened and I think it's 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 born out of the process of writing um, well any book I suppose but certainly a book like this in that and this was a major kind of breakthrough this realization that when you're thinking when i was thinking about ideas of like of plot or setting or character you can't think about those externally and then translate them as it were into the voice you have to and i think this works the same as when you're reading it as when you when you when i was writing it as well is that ideas come out of the voice you have to be thinking in that voice for the certain for the ideas that work in it to, to come out of it. So was it a matter so, of essentially steeping yourself in these yeah. Yorkshire terms and essentially... Yeah, I would I say mean, so. What, what did you do to essentially tweak your own particular brain so that you were this character and that you weren't 
cognizant of the frequency of, say, idiot or child? I mean, yeah. was it a matter of uh, essentially using them in your everyday vernacular? Yeah, yeah friends well, these the things, like, they, they creep into your everyday vernacular, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But it was, um, um, well, because there's not that many reference points because it's, because it's slightly unusual book and so when I would begin writing at the beginning of each day it would take me quite a long time to get warmed up and I, I would do that by partly by reading previous passages that I'd written but also by I got myself a whole like folder that I just drew up um, just a, a dictionary a lexicon of words that I'd found or researched and words that I'd made up and so at the beginning of writing each writing shift I would I'd read through it you know, I might read through, say, the K's, say, just get a real feeling for the K's and or mix the K's and the B's, and then 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 it would start to start to come into my head, and then I would, and then I, I then I'd think about the idea of whatever particular passage I was writing, and I'd read through them, and I'd think, and I'd pick out words, and I'd say, well, that you know, go up, there's a go up in there, let's get a go up in there, and there's a, you know, there's a fern tickle, yeah, let's pull that one out, and so then I'd have, you know, a grouping of words that I could sprinkle into it. How many words did you have all thing all told? I mean, and also I'm wondering. I know you also work as a waiter. Did you use the kind of conversations that you overhear at restaurants <laughs> and, and insert these into your invented list of words? I had about well, first I had about I don't know a few hundred words, I suppose. Not 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 a massive amount. Um, and in terms of using snippets from the restaurant, I have to say, probably not. Not directly, anyway. I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, in a subtle sort of way, this, I mean, I work in a quite, I work in a snooty restaurant that's full of city boys, and so, you know, you're not going to hear anything directly that can be used in a novel about a poor, yeah. young Yorkshire sheep farmer. But then again, any experience you, you have with talking to somebody or watching somebody, whether it's a little descriptive thing or it's the tone of their voice or any little thing they, they seep into your brain and they you know they, they do come out without you consciously perhaps knowing about it in your writing so anything is useful when you're mixing with a lot of people but directly no I'm curious about how parochial you got with this book I for example the words Buffett and Trunkelmans I am a bit of a language geek and I learned <laughs> that these actually came directly from Wakefield uh, and I'm wondering, uh, these particular nouns, which connote items or stools, uh, it's, it's interesting that nouns came from Wakefield. W was there any choice on your part towards uh, uh, selecting nouns from a particular uh, West Yorkshire area or uh, verbs from another region of, of, that of, of where the character was situated? Because we only have a few details as to where he might be, so he could be somewhere in West Yorkshire, but we don't quite know where, except he does wander about the moors quite a that's bit. That's interesting. Well, in fact, that's interesting. I'd not, I'd not, I'd not realised that. Um, I'd not done that, that extensive research to know that Buffett and Trunkelman came from the Wakefield area. Yeah. Quite, well, quite so, so, so the internet says, I guess. Right. <laughs> but then again, the internet says different things. Yeah. It's, and it's difficult to use as a kind of, I don't know. You've, you've, I've, I've also heard that Trunkelman comes from uh, North Yorkshire. Trunkelman is kind of, um, a Trunkelman is like a little nitty bitty trinket bit yeah. Bit, yeah trinket a little bit and piece um no i i didn't consciously decide to make them from i mean the book is actually set in north yorkshire but i suppose there would end up being quite a lot of west yorkshire words in there because that's that's the part of yorkshire that i'm i'm personally from mm -hmm. um but i've made no you know i've made no 
I, I make no bones about the fact that it is mixed up. There are words from North Yorkshire, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, and the sort of Humberside region in there. And and I would say that um, the language is more specific to him, to the character, than it is to any particular region of Yorkshire. But it is interesting to see just the commonalities between the different regions of Yorkshire. But for instance, I discovered in my research that there's um, there's over, and this is all related, to, I think, to the kind of abusive nature and the outsider sort of nature of Yorkshire language. That there are over 30 terms for left-handed all of them abusive. So like cuddy wifter is like a, yeah. a donkey pusher and cack handed, which is like cack is like um, excrement. So uh, yeah, they're all pejorative. But there's also bog trotter, which is frequently used, which is also uh, disparaging yeah. for an Irishman, but is also yeah, used in, in a kind of rambling context yeah. as well. And I'm wondering how aware you were of the etymology and the transition of a word over the course of, say, the last 100 years. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, bog trotter. Yeah, you're right. It is a it is an Irish word, but it's also um, it's a general word. I'd I'd say that's used all across the UK. Bog trotter, and it, you know, I, 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 that's a word I've been familiar with since I was a kid because I grew up in a rural area, and you know the ramblers used to walk past, and um, and we'd always call them bog trotters, and it was a kind of like a, a kind of bantery pejorative. Yeah. Well, was Kramaki an invention on your part? I mean, I know it's taken from Kramaki Creel, and uh, I tried looking for a specific use of Kramaki as a modifier, and I couldn't find one. Kramaki for, like, crickety limbs, I believe he uses at one particular point. Uh, I, yeah. I, and also, uh, Jarp comes from an Easter game, yeah, and yet right. you, you completely turned it into a verb. Is that, is that something that you know from your research, or do you do that in the U.S. here, Jarp? Uh, no, actually, I just became so curious about your book that I ended up just looking oh. up all these words myself. So I, I, when I see an unusual word, I'm going to track it down. And that's Jarp why is something I, to be honest, in West Yorkshire, I'd never heard of until I started, was hanging out with my uh, fiancé's family in North Yorkshire. I think it's a northeastern thing, actually. Huh. Um, and it's, it's basically... You, at Easter time, you um, you colour eggs um, dark brown in yes. on, by boiling them in onion skins, and then you have a competition with other people, and you hit each other's eggs, and it's whoever's breaks is the loser, basically. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like conkers, but with but with eggs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Mr. East beats an Easter egg kind. Of, I just yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also uh, no but. Which I don't didn't know if that was an homage to uh, Alan Thitchmart's Nubba Nubba to Lad, uh, or was that just a common usage? It's a common usage, and I think he's probably used that yeah. um, kind of aping his, um, you know, his his, his regionality. Well, and yeah, so, all, oh. to, well, sorry, no, but it's, it's interesting because, like, I mean, it's quite a while since I finished the book, and so in my in my memory, some of these things have slightly blurred, and I, it's a little bit difficult to find the lines of. In my head, of when I what did I invent and what and what was real? Um, yeah. I think that although some of the words that you find just constantly surprise you, and you think is that really a word? That's fantastic. I've never heard that used, but I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna have it in. Like like um, one of my favourites is um, fern tickles, mm -hmm. which is um, which is freckles. Yes. Um, 
So, so the idea of walking through um, bracken or ferns and they kind of reach up to your like face and kind of tickle around in a yeah. kind of gentle sort of a way. Yeah. I, I just love that, that word. I like that word too. I have actually a, a rather complex question in relation to Skittle, Ooh, go on. which you use uh, frequently when Marsdyke relates to Josephine. Skittled. Skittled. Okay. Uh, which, of course, is a parochial verb that comes from the game of nine pins. But you also use upskittled quite a bit, and this features into the prose whenever Marsdyke is on his own. And yet, when he is actually with Josephine, uh, he's more inclined to use skitter and skiffing. And this was interesting to me because skitter and skiffing are, are less parochial, and it's almost as if he's attempting to meet up with this uh, this kind of common language point and, I, and I'm wondering how okay. conscious this might have been the difference between you know skiffle and skitter <laughs> uh, skittle rather <laughs> that is that is a complex idea and to be honest I don't think <laughs> I don't think I was conscious of that upskittled so, yeah I'm not, I, I think upskittled is probably used more often in the in the book than than skittled I mean skittled yeah it's interesting I, sk- I mean Skittles is a game which is kind of like um, kind of like bowling, but it's not really a game that's played in Yorkshire. It's more of a kind of southwest sort of a game, which people, you know, even young people, they still they play today. Um, so I I wonder, and I and I don't know. I'd need to I'd need to go and look into it, but I don't know whether Skittles was originally played in Yorkshire. I guess it perhaps was. And then when you and then when you knock the skittles over, they're, they're up skittled. But it's also a noun that becomes a verb again. This is a common yeah. theme through the words that you are taking and appropriated and essentially making up. But they have, in all cases, with the exception of a few instances, I found that they had some kind of meaning. And, and I'm wondering, uh, uh, was there any criteria as to when you decided to transmute them into a particular Marsdyke speak, <laughs> or it was there? Uh, was this largely kind of an intuitive process? It was, yeah. It, it was largely intuitive, and it's something that was really pared down as well in the in the redrafting because, you know, there were lots of passages that I found that I just were really entrenched with Yorkshire dialect, and I came back to read them, and I didn't really understand them, and I and I thought, you know, if I can't understand them, then then I'm going to be struggling with with readers trying yeah. to understand that, and so it was, it was pared down. There's lots of words that I've left out because they're just, they're just too esoteric and they, they, it's very hard even in context to make them make sense which is obviously the you know my goal is to make sure that all of these things in context to any reader whether they're you know from the US or from down south could understand it and, and hopefully more or less they, they can. But why did Gleg, Chunter and Normal Times which I think are the three that appear the most frequent throughout yeah, the book probably. why did why were they the ones Gopped also as well, but uh, but why were these three the 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 crutch words, so to speak, or the specific words that in which Marsdyke was where was able to communicate his particular tale? So we got what Gleg, Normal Times, and what was the other one? And uh, the other one was uh, Chunter. Chunter, I think just because um, they're the situations that he finds himself in the book, so he's always he's always watching, and he's usually he's more often. <coughs> glegging than gawping because it's a slightly more in, insidious sort of thing that he's kind of he's always looking through little gaps so he's not he's not got the openness of being able to stare all the time and then normal times because so much of the book is about well it's just this is a slight deviation but but 
so much of the book is about what's normal and what's norm- not normal. I mean, the title of the book, Out Backward, you know, it's, it's a, something that his mother says to him when she's um, very, very frustrated with him because something he's done. She says, you must have come out backward. That's why you're not normal. Um, and what was the other one? The third oh, one? I it was again. Chunter. Chunter. Yeah. Oh, Chunter. You say it much better than me. I've got the, unfortunately, the flat American pronunciation. <laughs> Chunter. Chunter. Chunter's, Chunter's just better. a good word, I think. That's why I used it. I just like it so much. Yeah. Chunter. Well, the, and also, uh, Snitter is interesting to me because it's both a village in uh, Northumberland as well as a name of a character in Richard Adams's The Plague Dogs, uh, specifically a dog. And you use this in relation to a snitter of talk when Marsdyke is observing some school kids oh, emerging right. from yeah, the yeah. bus. And this was interesting to me because it, it gives us a kind of sense of the the dog and the uh, the whelp theme in the book while simultaneously this literary uh, attachment. There was also one, because I know that Dracula pops up near the end, yeah. and uh, damn it, I gotta find it, but there was <laughs> a specific um, usage. Oh yeah, uh, daffled, which comes directly from Bram Stoker's. There's a line, yeah. uh, we odd folks that be daffled. Uh, that that's right? in, in uh, Minna Murray's journal, and I saw basically tingled my memory, and I checked, went through the Bram Stoker book, and there it was. So, were these words which are associated with literary illusions intentional on part no, of your part? No, this is kind of fascinating to me actually because I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Well, but it's amazing the amount of things that crop up unintentionally, like people will say to you things like did you intend such and such a thing because there's that metaphor and, and a lot of the time no um, like for instance I didn't realise until somebody pointed out to me that um, in the kind of Dracula mythology there's a there's a there's a very much a layer of Dracula being interested in, in young girls like very young girls yeah. but I didn't I didn't really realise that I thought it was I didn't realise there were that, that there was that layer of like young girls and that's kind of a, a layer in the, in the book as well certainly with the there's a well it's, it's difficult to explain without without giving it away but there's a he befriends a um non-human character who dracula is like a little toy dracula that kind of follows him around as a kind of like little i don't know a little demon in his pocket yeah gotcha I, I also i have to ask you about this and this is a rather enormous question but it is nevertheless pertinent to uh, the concern for the backside throughout the book <laughs> uh, initially we see Marsdyke and he's throwing shit through a wall at these ramblers who are on the other side then we have the mushrooms in the next chapter which of course come from shit and then afterwards <laughs> we see these these endless fascination on his part for uh, the backside and, and arses and, and all these other uh, references uh, which I can name. <laughs> you know, my head was behind a ewe's backside. To snatch a look at the soft lump of Josephine's backside. I mean, asses, asses, asses. Uh, I gotta say, why why was Mars like an ass man? I mean, <laughs> you should go to Yorkshire. People, yeah, yeah, people joke about about bums quite a lot. I think it's quite a it is quite a Yorkshire thing actually, but it's quite an English thing as well. Yeah. I think it's it's to do with the reserve, I think. I mean, Yorkshire people are renowned as being... I mean, English people are reserved. Yorkshire people are like a step further. So they're renowned as being very reserved. And so when you get people like that, they will in kind of like a sort of like a little knowing way. They'll joke about bums and things like that. And yeah, there's a lot of backsides in the book. It's, it's true. But, you know, he's a farmer, so he's... 
Well, that, that, that goes without gonna be, saying. There's going to be a lot of uh, scutter, as that, it's called. That goes know. without saying, but you, sir, went deep into the shit, so to speak, with yeah. this uh, this very beginning. I mean, yeah, you, I you, were, you had no problem going into this figurative metaphor. I, I, I mean, this goes back to the question of topography and the Northern England English character as reflected through the shit or being on the lines <laughs> or being within the snickets. But but uh, uh, why was like, the ass the natural entry point, so to speak, to this <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the ass was the natural entry point, I think, because um, I think partly because I was a lot of the time writing the book, I was just having a lot of fun with it, yeah. and um, and it, you know it's kind of fun to write about about asses some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. You're smiling way too much, man. Uh, the rabbits. Uh, and the physical violence of Marsdyke. This reminded me very much of Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Uh, were you attempting to... We were talking about Dracula earlier, but were you attempting to kind of have a little sort of literary homage to uh, Of Mice and Men? No. Uh, no. I mean, these are things that you... In an ideal world, you become aware of after you've written them. I think if you become aware of... You're writing a passage and you think, oh, this is kind of like... Um, you know, this is kind of like John Fowles, or this is kind of like Pat McCabe. Then you you're gonna be you're gonna be in trouble because you with yourself, like with your brain, because you, your brain will get confused and it'll become limited because you you could um, you could lose sight of what it is actually you are individually trying to achieve. But I think when you, especially when you write a character like this, who is well, he's he's the outsider for one thing, and he's also quite an oddball. He's got a kind of mentally warped view of the world. Then there's going to be lots of figures in literature that spring to mind um, in comparison. So the Butcher Boy, um, yeah, is, is is a classic one, and that's a book that I'd read before I wrote the book, um, and no doubt influenced me quite a lot because I think it's one of the best books I've I've ever read. Um, and you know, in a in a subconscious kind of way, uh, probably helped me with the book of mice and men as well. Yeah, the, 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 you know, you can start to list them, and they they go on. And the wasp factory, the collector, all these kind of screwball young guys, I suppose, who are who are mentally um, well deficient in some way. Yeah. But but it's it's really important, I think, when writing to, to kind of discover that afterwards, or or for somebody else to say it to you, and you go, yeah. Yeah, you, I can see what you mean there. I'm wondering then if the language actually assisted you in dealing with these rather unsettling mental processes going on within this particular character, whether this served as a way for you to both remove yourself personally from yeah. these disturbing realities that are brought up and by yeah. roughly around page 150, we then are completely trapped within what we know and what we thought we know is now something else. I, I'm wondering if, if language while simultaneously helping you to, to confront these more dark and unsettling truths, likewise, it, it does have a way of, for me, I, I, hey, I, I was so caught up in the words that I, I really abdicated yeah. my common sense. And, yeah. and something that should have been glaringly obvious early on kind of snuck up on me, uh, so to speak. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I see what you mean there, but the, the language isn't deliberately meant to kind of obfuscate things. It's, it's, um, it's kind of, it's part of a an idea of making the character appealing actually in a way and for you to be really drawn to him because the more drawn you are to him by his language his voice and his humor as well and and also his um and also by the sympathy that's elicited by 
the things that happen to him and the way people deal with him, the more you're compelled into his world and and then the more um, difficult and confusing I think it is when he starts to, you know, when he does turn and when he does start to do quite dark, quite repulsive things. And the idea then is that you're more likely then to think about why why he does those things and to kind of question yourself and question the society that he lives in. Because I, you know, I very much felt that, and do feel, that usually that kind of character in fiction is, um, is demonised and they're made, and, and they're kind of outside of the narrative uh, a lot of the time. There's a, there's, a, there's a book that's really in my head right at the moment, but I'm not going to say it because it's cruel, but um, they're, they're turning to the monster and so you're not encouraged always to, to understand them because they're not they're not they're not human you know you're encouraged to think of them in a kind of like sensationalized tabloid way as as not human they're outside of any understanding that we have and i wanted to to contradict that and do the opposite by making them really exuberantly human so that you you do think about you know what's what's their process in their brain there but simultaneously there is this concern of the old world versus the encroaching development uh, there's the one farmer who is turning his farm essentially into a yeah. housing development there's the bar that's being franchised and the yeah. like uh, and so we come to sympathize more with Marsdyke and and really fall yeah. into this language and and really learn to relish it uh, and then uh, we then get to see how unsettling it is and, and one of the things about this book that that disturbed me was was how you present this exuberance and how you feature this really fascinating northern england character only to make the voice so associated with yorkshire and the like yeah. and, and and revealing it's really dangerous and ugly realities yeah. so uh, i'm wondering uh if this was something you struggled with because you almost have this kind of dichotomous scenario that, that prevents one from seeing oh well, the goodness of development versus the, uh, yes. the good and the bad of Northern England. It's almost as if you're, you're, you're married into this voice and you're married into the Northern England character. And, yeah. and, and it, it comes across both as a kind of pulling the carpet out from the reader's feet, but it also comes across as something in which I say, well, hey, wait a minute. I I, uh, I got caught into all these old great things only to have it, uh, only be ransacked yeah. by raisin here. Yeah. <laughs> I like that, ransacked by raisin, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, and, you know, one of the effects of making a voice like that so distinctive and so individual is that it, 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 it acts antagonistically because it makes when you hear the other people in the book that he's condemning and he's constantly railing against their language is pale and it's and it's it's weak and insipid and and it makes you think well yeah who are these you know who are these people and what are they doing moving into the countryside and and um you know doing up the barns and and it, and it, yeah the book is very very much throttled on these people are shouldn't be doing this and it's destroying the countryside and and even though that's coming through a warped voice that is of the, of the narrator and certainly you're not supposed to I, I wouldn't condone or agree with everything that he says in it I personally would agree with him in that sense that the countryside the dynamic of the countryside is being changed and this isn't a particularly new thing it's been going on for a very long time and it's not specifically you know particular to um to yorkshire it's 
happens all through England, happens around here as well, you know, in, in the US. It happens um, in this city, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's something that I, yeah, but it's difficult because, you know, yeah. I live in London and I, in a, you know, part of me thinks oh, I'd really like to kind of have a, I'd like to have a little cottage in Northumberland or somewhere yeah. and I could go up there and write. But then I think, well, yeah, but that's exactly the opposite of uh, everything I ever say yeah. in the media or in the book. But, yeah. But, you know, I think there's certain there's lines of responsibility and the idea of second homeowners is not an idea that um i particularly warm to because because you know second homeowners move in and often prime properties like in terms of location and in terms of like historical properties as well they're, they're lying empty for like three quarters of the year and that has a big effect on uh, on the feeling of a community and that, that creates division and that creates you know bitterness and it also pushes the community the real community further further out pushes them to the edges which which is what happens in the book and then on the kind of edges of those edges the, this kind of marauding character Sam Marsdyke he kind of operates and watches through it all I get what you're what you're saying here, but I, I wonder if there's a certain risk in having this, you know, the ransacked by raisin dilemma, the yeah. uh, the idea of having the wool pulled over one's uh, head. There's a sense of a manip- manipulation, I, I yeah. think, towards the reader, and I, and I'm wondering if if you're actually playing fair by taking this particular approach by presenting something and then presenting it. You know, I just think, something else. I mean, I, you mentioned the Wasp Factory. Ian Banks does that all the time. Yeah. But I'm wondering uh, if there is a sincerity here, and I think there is in the language. I'm wondering if a kind of narrative manipulation might get in the way of delivering that sincerity, or whether this is something that you just don't care about. Um, I I, I kind of think that even if it's being put through a certain mouthpiece that has a certain tone to it as long as the reader is being made to think about it and that's the most important thing for me and I I would prefer probably to give the reader, my readers the benefit of the doubt and think they can make up their own mind about what they think just just, just think about it I think yeah um, and you know the, the sort of and it, it's there's, there's a kind of playful edge to it as well I suppose in terms of you know this is a, this is a it's a literary fiction book you know and so a lot of the readers of this book, especially as it's a kind of it's a first novel as well, and so that's you know that's a smaller market, and that's it's not certainly not yet it's not popular fiction, mm. and so a lot of my readership are the people that are in the book as the um, as the people that are having the mic taken at them. They're the ramblers, you know, they're the, they're the second homeowners, and so there's a kind of there's a there's a there's a playful edge to that as well, I think. Well, well c- certainly, and and I agree with you on that. But on the on the other hand, if you are presenting this language as something that is essentially real or authentic, and it certainly is based off of uh, all the terms that you use, doesn't this fly in the face of the clear artifice of of Basically, uh, ransacking the reader here. Yeah. Or, uh, what's what? How do you corral these these two notions, or is this just essentially your audience, or is this what you view the audience to be for your particular type of literary fiction? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose it comes back again actually to that. I don't I don't view the voice actually as being 100% authentic. Mm-hmm. It's 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 about this character. It's not. It's about the character more than it is about the specific location. Um, and so I don't, yeah, I, 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 
I have no qualms with, with the ransacking, actually. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> what about verisimilitude here? I mean, if the verisimilitude is there through voice, is the verisimilitude not exactly there through narrative? Your relationship to this book is, seems to me, very much one of style versus story, and style working over the story to, to, to again, ransack the reader. You have no problems with this, but uh, but nevertheless, there there is a relationship here. There is a almost a, a separation of style and content that uh, that makes this book quite interesting. But at the same time, if one wishes to marry the two, uh, uh, how do you marry the two? Yeah, well, I think in my head they are kind of married. Actually, I think um, yeah, I think I think I think they do go together. And I and I and I found as well writing the book that my um, my views changed, uh, and I I, bec I became more uh, uh, thinking. Yeah, uh, I am aware of the fact that it is perhaps doing the ransacking, but I I agree with I agree with this point, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. Got it. I also wanted to ask you about um, Claude Greengrass and the mug that uh, Marsdyke gives to yeah. his father that he looks upon with disapproval, Claude Greengrass being from, from Heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, and father appears to be bothered by this telegenic portrayal of what the northern miner might be. Uh, but you also have a number of tankards uh, in, uh, in pubs and in bars. Uh, and, and this seemed to me kind of a willful playing around with what the notion of the uh, of a, almost a chalice-like symbol, uh, an Arthurian type of metaphor. Uh, and why did you have this, again, this contrast between, I suppose, the, uh, the developed versus the rural? Uh, but also <laughs> that the rural exemplar is this uh, terrible uh, telegenic portrayal of reality, which I find to be quite interesting, to the point where Marsdyke is then chanting green grass throughout the last half of the book. Yeah. I think, um, like, like in terms of those tankards and things like that, that's in essence a bit of a piss take of, of the people that are coming to, to, to drink in these new bars because because they want it all in a way. They want the, the bars that they're used to, they want the wine bars and they want the glitchiness of it, but they also want the kind of authenticness of what they think is um, like the old style and what have you. So you go to these bars and they'll have the old tankards hanging off the roofs, but in a way it's a kind of a nonsense because they never meant anything in the first place. And the, and yeah, and and the, the idea of the, the Greengrass characters in a way an extension of that because like if you go up to that area where um, Heartbeat is filmed, which is a really beautiful area called Goathland in um, North Yorkshire, and it's ridiculous. I mean, this is it's described in the book, but it's it's just there's nothing there, but for coach loads of of tourists, and they they go up there because they you know they like the show, they like Heartbeat, and they want to get the kind of authentic idea of what the place is. But it but it isn't. It's not real. You know, it's just they've been told, they've been told it, and so they believe. They've been told that it's real, and the, the idea of this this guy Greengrass marauding about the place. But to also go back to the Buffett, you describe one Buffett as having 50 years of secondhand smoke uh, steeped into it, and then later on, in one of these upscale new bars, you describe it as this metal Buffett. Uh, and, and it seems to me, both with the mug and the tankard and the Buffets, that one does not necessarily see, I guess, the gray area in between, uh, or is the gray area in the Buffett the usage of Buffett instead of stool? Uh, what, what's the deal here? Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
I mean, I suppose the idea is that you're getting rid of all that. So, yeah, so the line is something like that when they're demolishing the old pub, the Fat Betty, they're throwing all the stuff in the skip, and so they're throwing these buffets in there that are, um, whatever the line was, steeped with 50, 50 years' worth of smoke, drink, and, and farts. Yeah. You know, and that's a kind of a disgusting image, and it's a disgusting thing, but, but the idea is, you know, is it... Is it necessary? You know, should should we be keeping that thing there because that's that's reality. That's what this area is. That's it's a buffet. You know, that buffet lives there. Yeah, and it has its place. But these people are moving in, and they want it. You know, they want they want it, but they don't want it. They want to have the kind of oh wow, this is this is this is so charming. This yeah. is God's own country. This is wonderful. But get rid of those buffets. They stink. Let's get these these glitchy metal stools in there instead. These yeah. these fancy things, and it's like, you know. You, you can't have it all, you know. But I guess do you corral this dichotomy with the knowledge that in 50 years' time, the glitchy Buffett, the <laughs> wonderful, charming metal Buffett, is eventually going to get the 50 years of smoke and fart and drink? <laughs> is that the way to sort of, I guess, break out of this uh, this perspective that is presented in the present in, the, in this particular narrative? Or? Possibly, yeah, possibly. And, you know, the fact is that a, a lot of... It's just kind of the shock of the new. People don't, and this character resists it. But that new becomes old, and it's, it's about it's about moving to an area and being responsible and and um, taking care of its history and its sense of community, and not imposing your own one upon it. And so, you know, there are plenty of people up there who who were once new, and they were resisted and hated and you know people like me would have railed against them but then you know 30 40 50 years later they've become part of the community and they're and they're as much part you know they have as much right to it as anybody else my parents i suppose you know were a bit like that when they moved into it's a different area but they, they moved into a rural area and um they were resisted by local farmers and, and and such at first over the course of like 30 years they became very much a part of the part of the landscape only for a new generation to rail against them I yeah now there's now um their their, their house was um taken over by a load of fat well a fat american couple who needless to say are uh, were disliked and hated but i don't know how they're getting on now but um i don't think that, i don't know it'll take, it'll take them a while Got it. it'll take them a long time well ross it was a pleasure chatting with you thank you so much for taking the time out thank you very much all right thank god i'm a country boy when the work's all done and the sunset low, pull out the fiddle and the rosin up the bow. Kids are asleep, so I keep a catalog. And thank God I'm a country boy. I play Sally Gooden all day if I could.